Great day, amazing humans. Yes, welcome to Empowered in My Skin, the podcast. We feature guests of varying backgrounds and lived experiences to share their empowering stories, knowledge, and insights. Our goal is for you, the listener, to fill your mind with empowering content to further empower your human. I'm your host, Inkeaching Waffle Robinson, and founder and CEO of Empowered in My Skin, Inc. I'm an award-winning technology executive, having been awarded Most Powerful Women in Canada Top 100 by the Women's Executive Network, WXN, in 2020. But that's not all. I'm a proud author, an international federation of bodybuilding pro athlete, an inspirational speaker, and viral sensation with speeches that have been viewed over 10 million times worldwide. I trust that you are already feeling empowered. So please listen, leave a review, share the podcast, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. For now, I'm your girl. Let the show begin. Great day, amazing humans. Yes, welcome to the next episode of Empowered My Skin, the podcast. Our next guest had no intention of becoming a disruptor in the mental health and grief space. While pursuing his dream of creating stories that connect people, events in his life forced him to focus his full attention on surviving trauma, compounded grief, and the various outcomes of finding himself as an LGBTQ identifying male. He shows up in the world as an active, committed mental health advocate after landing just to the left of death three times in his 20s, losing his brother to cancer, finding his father after suicide, and surviving a fatal accident that killed a dear friend and left him relearning to walk. He attributes his ability to not only survive but thrive with PTSD and compounded grief to the presence and proliferation of community and connections in his life. Please join me in a wondrous podcast welcome for the amazing Addison Brazil. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you. I want you to introduce me everywhere. <laughs> I think I have to make that a side business because I, I guess that's Seriously, yeah. But in full transparency to everyone that's listening, um, as you know, I've, I've, I lost my dad actually on March 26th of this year, just not that long ago from where we're making this recording. Actually, it's 22 days ago, I think. And um, and so Addison had been introduced to me. Thank you, Gareth, not for, for introducing me to this amazing, amazing uh, human. And I was really inspired by his story and what you've been able to endure as a human. Um, but now based on where I am and even just being able to, you know, actually say I understand, you know, or that I, I, I get a little bit closer. I'm really excited about where this interview has landed and the date that we're shooting on. And I thank you for the grace because I had to reschedule um, because I <laughs> couldn't do it in our original recording. But I, I'm just excited to be here with you right now. I'm, I'm very excited to be here too, which can sound very odd considering it's grief meets grief, but I'm, I'm truly just happy that you're willing to honor your journey, like openly and visibly with me, kind of as a peer, as a member of Grief Club with you. So I'm really, I'm happy to be here today. I love that Grief Club. Well, welcome to the Grief Club, right? So <laughs> I want to know just to, just, you seem very inspiring. You have an energy that, um, for everyone, we're on video also, um, so I'm looking at someone that looks quite amazing. And uh, so I want to know, what's your most uh, empowering thought that you've had for the day so far? Um, that has to be 
something I've been whispering to myself uh, for the last few days, which is just, you are exactly where you're meant to be. Mm. And how do you know that? Um, I don't. And that's why the more gentle side of myself is reminding myself. I, I feel like I, I haven't been knowing that. And that's when, when I whisper it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just sort of, instead of kind of feeling lost, it just sort of quickly rewires my brain to then look around, listen. Okay. So if I'm right where I'm meant to be, then, you know, what's right. happening right now and what's about to happen. And, and uh, where's this day going? If, if, if it's from the belief, like I'm where I'm meant to be. Uh, it just, it helps align me really quickly. I just, you know, oh, that that tree is meant for me. That wind is meant for me that, you know, it's all guiding me somewhere. And um, it is weird. And I'm totally one of those people that can be like, okay, that sounds a little woo woo for me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as you really start to rewire your mindset and create these little prompts for yourself, it is, it's quite true how, you know, it just, switches your attention to okay well if that's true then what else is true you know i'm gonna say this 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 experience with you then is very true Mm -hmm. and -hmm. when it's happening in our lives is very very true so i read uh i read just a tidbit of who you are um and what you've endured but would love you to share with the listeners a little bit more about who is addison brazil Hmm. i know this is a loaded question but yeah it it really is in this moment Absolutely. And and I'm going to take on that challenge with integrity and grace because it can get, obviously I've written this book, First Year of Grief Club, a gift from a friend who gets it. And in order to write that book, I endured a lot of grief and a lot of loss in my 20s, um, while also going through all the sort of normal micro losses is what I would call them, not because they were smaller, but just because we miss them when they're not as tangible, if it's not a physical death, you know, not getting the first job you wanted, breakups, you know, finding yourself. I mean, all those things were still happening, but I had these sort of three movie-like grief processes that I, that everyone was really paying attention to in my 20s. Um, my brother had an inoperable brain tumor during my high school career, as you said, and uh, he passed in my first year of school. And about four years after that, I lost my dad to suicide, and I was actually the one to find him. So that just created an entire shift in my world of just what's possible and what needed to become possible for me to to survive. And like you said, um, you know, I was really looking to thrive. I didn't want to just be here despite my losses. I didn't want to coast. Um, I was this loving, vibrant, grateful, funny guy. And it was very, very important to me and to the memory of those that I lost to get back to being that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I did, I went out in the world and I did everything you can imagine, like every retreat, every modality, like I just, you know, I wanted to fix my grief. I wanted to fix my mental health. I wanted to be better. And I think I believed I did that, you know, and, and so much to point that people were even saying, you sound like you again, you're back. And I'm like, good check mark. I did grief just like, you know, I did school or I did jobs or I did, you know? And so I was really in that, that mentality still that that was possible. And, um, I was in Los Angeles and in that week where I was kind of celebrating that I felt myself again, I, I went out with a friend and on the way home, we got into a very, very terrible fatal event and accident. Um, and she didn't make it. And, and I was rushed to the hospital where I spent, you know, the next few weeks to a month relearning to walk and deal with a brain injury. And it was really just the first time in my life where it was a full reset. 
like my my operating system was not going to work i always say it was like i was trying to run windows on a mac and it just wasn't going to work you know and uh it was really frightening and i had dealt with obviously grief before compounded grief the two closest men to me in my life i had lost before i was 25 and i felt no more equipped to deal with what i was dealing with and and that the accident came with this idea of physical grief as well i was in pain 90 percent of the time i had used my body in the past to like work through things mm -hmm. and work out very physical in that way and so it just came with sort of all these extra elements and and my dad's suicide was a mental PTSD for me, but the accident was very much a, a physical one where I didn't have as much memory, but my body kind of kept the score. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it was just all these three grief processes were just so complex. And it wasn't until much later when I started to really compare them that I was even able to see that for myself, there was nothing like sort of place marker about them. Yeah. And every time somebody would say that they've lost someone anytime somebody would bring it up i would freeze i just i didn't want to look them in the eyes i didn't want to like i didn't want to tell them how bad it would be i just figured you know they're going to know soon enough and i just sort of had this feeling that you know the casseroles and the condolences and you know the flowers that all come in those moments it's great and it's a great initial initial support but I just know deep in my heart that we know something much we need and know that we need something much past that when the mm -hmm. silence hits, when the swirl mm -hmm. of all hits. Mm -hmm. And so after kind of 13 years of, of hiding with all this, with this grief and um, trying to make sense of it, really, I decided not to make sense of it. I decided to take the biggest lesson, which was that it couldn't be fixed. It could only be honored. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what did that look like? Uh, and what would that look like if you checked in with me weekly and we just experimented in it and we just got to know ourselves again within it and everything was an offering. And if it worked for you, great. Add it to your grief resilience toolkit. If it doesn't get rid of it, because I'm in the arena with you. And, you know, it's like being at the gym. If it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. Why would we keep doing it over and over again? Right. So so that's kind of where the where you know, I finally got to the point when COVID hit where it felt like everybody around me was grieving. I didn't feel isolated by grief. I could tell everybody was grieving the loss of something meaningful, you know, and people were losing people. And then on top of it, they didn't have the rites of passage. They were losing jobs. They were losing the right to go into work, to come together as communities. And grief was just everywhere. And it was so uncomfortable to be like, you know this, you know this, like, why are you not saying anything when everybody's trying to describe something and you're sitting there kind of laughing going, yeah, that's grief, that, yeah, that's grief, what you're talking about. Um, and so it just kind of finally, like this book had been growing inside of me for, you know, these 13 years alongside some of the greatest adventures, love, beauty, awe, hope, like what's wild about me isn't actually what's happened to me. It's, it's how much I've still been able to experience, I personally think, and how deeply connected I've been able to remain to so many beautiful people, despite like teaching me like how harsh loss can be. Mm. But um, yeah, after 13 years, it was like, I don't know, I say in my, in, in the book at the end, like it was like having a baby, like my water broke and it was time. And it just yeah. was like, this has to come now. Yeah. Mm, and it, and it did. And, and it's like such a big process as it's being birthed and, and then it's out in the world. And then it's like this raw feeling of a part of you is out there. But um, if I can make anybody feel like grief club, isn't a, a loner's club, like something yeah. you're doing by yeah. yourself while also respecting that 
me being the friend who gets it doesn't mean that I know your grief or I know exactly what you're going through. It's just that I know that, you know, the initial rites of passage we have in society are only the beginning, you know? So, wow. So one, thank you for, I I was totally enraptured by everything that you were saying. Um, One of the things that came to mind um, as you were flowing through that is just, I mean, hearing what you've, what you've gone through over those 13 years and what birthed from it. What I really would love to understand is if you take yourself back to that very first experience with your brother, um, because I'm assuming potentially, um, correct me if I'm wrong, every of each one of those experiences, like those macro experiences prepared you for the next one without even really realizing that. But if you go back to that very initial one, what was it, my girlfriend says this so beautifully, what was it like not allowing grief to pin you down before you decide to get up? Mm. So when that first happened, like what was, what, what either, like what support system did you have? Maybe what, what did you discover that lived within you that really said, you know what, this does not have to pin me down. There's something mm. bigger and greater than this and I can continue to live forward. What uh, do you know? Yeah, I'm going back to that very first one. This is uh, ex-perfectionist Addison, overachiever. Okay. I can fix this Addison, right? So my brother actually had quite secretly held this huge event at his high school where he wanted to raise money for other brain tumor families that were in a similar situation, but maybe didn't have the same support system that our family did. And I love that you brought that up. Yes, I was so supported, like unbelievably supported. And that's one of the other things that inspired me to go back and write the book was because it sometimes keeps me up at night. If I was that supported and I struggled that much, like how must it feel for someone who's maybe just a little bit less supported or a little bit less privileged? Like it just, it really kind of, gets me in that place in your heart where it feels like someone's squeezing your heart, you know? Um, And so, yeah, going back, I, that first grief process, which I'm just going to come back to the human level and say, when I lost my brother, who is my best friend, sometimes I try to go into advocacy and get out of the the realness of this. So I'm going to try not to do that today. But when I lost him, um, Leading up to it, I had started the nonprofit organization. It's called Team Brother Bear, based out of Toronto. It supports sick kids. And everyone just got like really gathered around us. And I really like that's what I was focusing on. And there was a part of me maybe that thought if I pumped out enough good, we could get the Hail Mary miracle and you know, he wouldn't go. And then when he did, there was so I think it was a little bit of a gift that there was so much purpose in the pre-grief because Mm -hmm. sometimes that purpose doesn't come for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, And another gift for me is I, you know, in contrast to my brother, and I'm going to try to say this without getting emotional, but my brother had spent four years with an inoperable brain tumor. And quite honestly, I had been living my dream. I had gotten to go to the, I was a dancer and I danced very intensely at a very high level. And I, I taking the year off to spend with him, I actually ended up in Germany competing at the worlds and then auditioning and getting a scholarship for a conservatory school and did like a 180. I was going to go pre-med McGill and I ended up in Pittsburgh. So I, I had found, I was coming home at the end of my first year and I loved school. Like I loved everything I was doing. And so it was this weirdly beautiful thing that when everyone told me I could kind of stay back after he passed, because he passed sort of the first week of what would have been my second year. And we expected that I would defer the semester. And it ended up being this total opposite thing where we were trying to navigate within three weeks, how they could get me back in and how I could still pass with credits. Because 
I just needed to do what I, what I did. And, and like I said earlier, be physical move, you know, like for all the things you don't have words for what a time to be dancing in your prime, you know, because it was just, it was all right there in my body. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting because I, I sometimes describe my, my brother's death as like in comparison to a very beautiful death. There's a very traumatic element and an unexpected element to losing my father, you know, and anybody who's listening, who's lost someone to suicide will know that. And I'm sure we can put a trigger warning in the, in the episode as well for anyone listening. And then obviously with an accident, it's, it's out of nowhere. And you, you know, there's, you know, there's physical to both me and obviously my friend, but it was, it was just so different. Um, and I was, I was lucky too. I was 19. I was in love. I was naive. I was living my dream. Like I, you know, I got carried a lot, thank God, um, by, um, by that first grief process, um, by community and just by my own commitment to what I, what I cared most about at the time. Wow. And, and so thank you for sharing so, um, vulnerably also, that was uh, very touching, but I, one of the things that came up for me did I realize that you've experienced, you've had that journey with your brother, and then you had the suddenness with your father, and even mm-hmm. the suddenness of the accident. Is, there, is it different in terms of entering into grief when you have time to realize that maybe it's coming versus, ooh, it just mm-hmm. happens, and it's suddenly, it cannot be undone, and there's nothing you could do. Like, that's, like I've been working through that. Um, I was yeah. see my dad. And I said, 237, I said, see you soon, you know, mm-hmm. and never saw him again, you know. Um, Whew, yeah, that really resonates with me. Um, you know, in order to answer that question, it's weird if like, you know, I put on my like sort of researcher brain, like, I feel like they would have had to happen in the opposite order because the first one was where we were preparing, mm-hmm. um, you know, so like the, the retrospect of it, it, like, I think maybe if it happened the other way, I would have really realized that, but it was, it's also my brother's death was so wrapped up in my own loss of innocence, my own childhood ending. I mean, quite literally, I was 18 turning 19. So like, you know, like it, it was so many of the ends of things at the same time for me and the beginning of so much that he would never do, mm-hmm. um, that it was, that the preparation got lost. But as far as you know, getting to make sure certain rites of passage happened. Yes. I mean, we were aware going for almost a month that, you know, he was in his last days. And so we were able to gather, we were able to play his favorite music. We were able to spend night after night doing anything we could do to make him feel at home, even if he wasn't speaking, communicating in the way he once had. Um, and, And we were able on the very morning, my mom had a very visceral knowing. They said that, you know, he's at the end, but it'll probably take the week. And, and she knew, she, she knew that it was going to happen within hours. And um, she woke us up and we were like, we can't do this all week. Like, what are we going to do? You know, just stay, stand here for the whole week. And she was so right. And, you know, luckily I actually called my dad and he came over in 20 minutes and my dad got up the stairs. He told my brother, he loved him. And my, my brother was gone. So we were all there. It was a holiday Monday. I always joke, like my brother's such an asshole. He died like so conveniently. So nobody had to be at work. Everybody could gather. This is beautiful, sunny day. And this like truly like beautiful one of a kind kid that just had friends from two to 72, you know, was going to be honored. Like he had a rock star funeral. So, you know, it's so weird, but only in retrospect, what I say, like, yeah, there was so much beauty about that. And there was so much beauty about how, even though it was, we were 
preparing for something we never wanted to accept. And honestly, I don't think you ever do accept it until it's like, I mean, I'm willing to say it even after my brother passed, I had to physically keep touching him. Mm. I, I did not believe I had to really understand. And in my family, we even have, you know, open casket funerals. And, and there's a part of that that's in me that it's like, no, I really need to know because otherwise I just can't believe this, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so yeah, definitely, you know, it's hard because with, with an accident, something traumatic, you know, something violent, something like suicide, there isn't a heads up, although I will say my dad's death, definitely what I inherited was a mental health education. And there's a lot more I would be in tune with now as mm -hmm. far as what was happening. I was very aware that something was happening. It just happened very quick. And at the time, this was an adult man who was like a success who you had to respect the privacy of. And there weren't, you know, we hadn't, we created the first men's mental health app, but like that, that was not a thing. Like we weren't, you know, the commercials, the slogans, like none of that was really there 12 years ago, especially for men. Um, so, it, you know, there, maybe there could be more preparation in that now, but as far as someone coming and saying like they did with my brother, like this is a finite amount of months based on science, yeah. prepare yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think there's there's gotta be something to that where you, you at least at the very least, even if, cause a lot of it, it made me go into action in a charitable way and then sort of numb, like, you know, I'd be like, oh, you should tell him certain things and I just wouldn't say anything. So there is still sort of that weird, you think, oh, if I had just gotten to say that, you know, but then I think back with my brother and his nurse being like, hey, hey, you should say whatever you say right now, he can still hear you. And I would just freeze and sit there sort of like a kid who won't perform when a parent's asking them to. It really made me so, so uncomfortable because I, I even though I was supposed to be prepared, I was not going to accept it, not openly. I wanted the Hail Mary. <laughs> um, this is making me very emotional because um, I guess my question to you is um, what can we use and pull from or tools can we offer to listeners here when you don't get that chance to say goodbye, you know? Um, and it keeps repeating my head, like, why didn't I, in that last conversation, just say, Daddy, I love you? Like, you know, um, how do we move past that? And I think... For me, and again, I'm only the expert of my experience, and I always want to make sure, unlike your amazing guest that you had recently, Dr. Jillian, I am a, I do consider myself a peer. I know a lot more about it. So what I offer is always from my experience, and I'm not a professional in that sense. But for me personally, it was sort of like we were talking about earlier of, you know, sort of retraining your brain when those things come up. And one thing with my dad specifically because uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm like under the surface right now, radiating. Because with my dad, especially, there's just so much where, you know, why didn't I tell him like nothing mattered? Like, you know, like just, you know, whatever you're thinking, you know, whatever it is, you know, especially with suicide, you just, you know, there's, there's so many natural things you're going to think. And I think one thing that I will say as a member of Grief Club is I really resented and it slowed me down when people said you shouldn't feel guilty. You, you shouldn't feel guilty. And, you know, for instance, my, I'm pretty sure from what I put together, my father's last meal was um, ooh, a frozen dinner. Yeah. And what makes me me, what makes me human is that for the rest of my time, it will always bother me. I never saw the man eat a frozen dinner and 
30 year, or 23 years. I'm trying to bring him with me. He wasn't here with me for 30 years, but for 23 years, never saw that. And that like, and so people, you know, would try to help me by telling me to let go of it. And, and then it, it started to kind of empower me back to really listen into what are those thoughts really? Of course, you're the type of person who wish you expressed love one more time. That's who you are. Of course, I'm the type of person that will never really be okay with someone eating a frozen macaroni and cheese as their last meal, especially not my dad who must have been really hurting and in a hard spot, you know? And what that eventually turned into for me and over time and just reminding yourself is that, well, he would have known that too. You know, he, he would have known that too, you know? And it's something that I will not platitude and say like, oh, it's just gonna happen and we silver line it. But over time, it's kind of like, I always joke, it's like, you have to become too smart to be dumb. And you got to know that, that they knew, you know, and, and it's because your, your ego and your inner critic is really going to try to, you know, go for you because what it's trying to do is stop you from dealing with the grief, the heartache. If we think about the details, we're not thinking about that feeling in our chest. We're not thinking about, you know, how am I going to go on now? You know? So it's, it's really is this weird part of your toolkit that feels like it's attacking you, but in these initial stages, I, it is protecting you, yeah. you know, yeah. that rumination it's protecting you because sometimes I think if we just in the beginning sat into the full fullness of our loss, yeah. it would be overwhelming, you know? So yeah. your, your ego, Brene Brown, I, I've been watching her new series and her book. I, I tell everyone to get with my book because I think emotional literacy is like such a big part of this yeah. to know yeah. how you're feeling when you're feeling but her definitions of stress and overwhelm have really hit home for me, you know, overwhelm being like, you know, you're, you're blown, like, you, you know, you cannot function properly versus stress. And you can be very stressed about what you wish you said to someone. But if you were just sitting in the loss and not thinking those things, you may be just completely overwhelmed all the time, unable to function, right? So it, I do feel like in a weird way, we give ourselves pieces I've had with the traumatic parts of my history, full blackouts of things that some things that I, I don't think I'll ever remember. And then things that I didn't remember for a very long time. And only when I was ready, did my brain go, okay, are you ready? Cause we do know this one thing, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and then a, a new process started. And, and I think that's the biggest thing that I can say to anyone is it's not, your brain is going to constantly go, let's fix this. Let's fix this. Let's mm. fix this. What are we dealing with? Let's fix this. And it's like, how can we honor this? How can we honor this? And the gentler voice right back to it. How, what's honoring this look like? Because the fixing is a trap and it goes on forever and ever. And I, I it sounds like harsh, but you know, when I say welcome to grief club, it begins the day it begins and it ends never I don't say that to overwhelm anyone. I say that so that they're prepared to wake up every morning and go, yeah, I've got to, I've got to make a relationship with what I've lost. Yeah. And it is going to change how I show up in this day. I'm yeah. going to make little tweaks. I'm going to use new tools, but I'm aware, you yeah. know, it's not this thing where it's like, I felt like at one point I wanted to name my book, Santa Claus isn't real. And that's not all kids because I felt like it was something we should have been told, yes. like, you know, not inferred that because we live, we die. And because other people die, we will grieve. Like it was this, you know, I was like, so you took me aside to tell me about a fairy that's not really coming around. And I don't even like to talk about this in case a kid's like listening in the car or something, because like magic of childhood is so important, but you know, you know, all these things that they kind of took us and sat us down and said, so, you know, 
how at Easter or you know when you're, you lose a tooth or that one man who goes around the world every year, like we sat down and talked about those things and yet no one told me like, you know, grief is coming and there's not gonna be a way to avoid it, you know? So first of all, I was emotional when I started that question. I feel so much more empowered at the end of, of you actually sharing um, from your perspective. And it brings me to something that you may even have heard in the interview that I did with Dr. Um, Jillian is around the jars of grief. And I think what I'm getting from you is, especially how you're able to even bring us into the experience with your brother, with your dad, and then even the accident, I realized that it's not that any of those it's not that you feel any less about what happened, but you've really blossomed into this big and amazing human um, as, a as a result of that. So it's really that your jar is like the jar has grown, right? And you're just mm. this more expansive person. And so I do, I want to, before I go into Rapid Thrivers, one of the things I'd love you to share is for anyone, I think it's even in the preparation, like this interview is preparation for, for people, they take this in and really learn from it to prepare themselves for when, you know, this unfortunate, you know, some trauma or adversity they're faced with. But really, how do we allow ourselves to say it's okay to, to feel joy and to thrive, even even like days following, because I've had, like, it's not all bad. I've had moments of laughter. I've had moments where I think about something yeah. that makes me laugh. And, but sometimes I get a call and people are like, oh, you must feel really horrible right now. And I'm like, actually I don't. And then there's guilt that I don't, you know? So how mm -hmm. do we, how do we accept the fact that we can thrive? We can feel joy. We can, we can feel happiness. We can allow ourselves to do that and not feel guilty about that because we're not, you know, sort of crying and, and, and consumed by the grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, what I would offer is take it or leave it, but I, I've been doing this for 13 years and for about 11 of them, uh, I, I did all those things. I was really hard on myself. I allowed that critic in and it really, really didn't get me any further ever. And so what I try to say to people is just to really try to stay kind, curious and compassionate. And, and you know, what is this instead of defining what this is with judgment as these things come up. And, you know, I know you guys spoke about this a little bit on the other podcast, but I, I truly believe and always say there is no right or wrong. There's only the truth. So if the truth of the moment is you're laughing, the truth of the moment is you're struggling, the truth of the moment is you have to redirect and cancel and change things, you know, you will always have the opportunity to make amends with integrity and express that. And the, and the one thing that's really on your side always is that there's this human understanding that loss is the most central human aspect of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. No one is going to not understand you grappling with your grief if you're willing to be honest about it. Yeah. And that's one thing that over and over again, my brain tries to tell me, no, your grief, put it away. Like, you know, they will not honor it. It needs to go mm -hmm. away. You need to be better now. And every time I have ever truly honored my grief or my mental health openly, I do have to say that it has always been honored, you know. That's beautiful. I love that. And I love you. I love you. I love you already. <laughs> My God. 
much. Thank you so much for sharing so openly. So I'm going to take you into these uh, into these rapid thrivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my first one is when you think of someone who inspires you, who comes first to mind and why? You know what I'm going to say, Brene Brown, and I know that's kind of like on the nose, but really right now it really is her. And it's because of this quest to go, she could have quit. And she's really pushing to give people a language and a literacy around human connection right now. And I think that's the missing piece. I think, you know, her research has found that most people use three emotions to describe their entire life. And as someone who has done a lot of inner work and has gone on the world, even I, every time I read a new emotion, I'm going, oh, so that's this and that's that. And it does free me a little bit. And anyone who you know, she could retire, she could be done, she could, you know, she's, she's going back and going, okay, but what about this? Mm-hmm. And technically, she's researching something that she, that she self claims she failed at in her original master's thesis, which mm-hmm. was figuring out connection, you yeah. know, and yeah. so she's like, like, it's hard when you like, don't get something, you know, I've been in a startup, I've written a book, I've tried to sell a TV show, it's, it's hard to stay with it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to be like, no, I think I can figure out this thing. And it will benefit so many people if I do. Yeah, if I just, um, so yeah. that's badass for me. I'm like, yeah, let's do I that. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, what is a daily activity that helps you stay in your thrive? Hmm. Um, for me, I, I, I talk about this in the book as like an option for people to do, but I, I make my money and I tap into my frequency of health uh, and unconditional love every morning when I make my bed, it's anchored to that. And it's something that I just, it's something I do every day. And it, it's funny because it's like, I'll run back and be like, oh, my wealth, my health, my unconditional love if I don't make my bed. So it's like this, this thing that I've attached to, to making my bed. And it's also something that I, I took, which was a trigger. Um, when my, my dad was a perfectionist and the only time I've ever seen his bed not made was the day that I found him. Uh, and so that was a weird thing for me. And so it's become this, this way that I sort of connect with what's really important to me every day and Mm -hmm. sort of reframe that. And Mm -hmm. so it just, it's this powerful little silly thing where making my bed is sort of the, you know, the fuel. I love that. And and do you fold the corners? Like, are you, like, are you a a military? No, I, I really, I really tried to like drop that any perfection around (laughs) anything. (laughs) I'm like, you know what, as long as it's made. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. You know, I'm I'm actually (laughs) saying that because on this morning, we're nowhere to fly. So I, Decide, don't know what it was. I woke up this morning and I thought about my dad. And for whatever reason, next thing I know, I was stripping my bed. Um, and even though I just changed the sheets a couple of days ago, and I put, a, I went to the closet and I put on a fresh new pair of sheets. I have no idea. My normal thing is I just drop it into the laundry. I clean those sheets and I put them back on the bed so I don't have to fold. But today there was something about wanting to make my bed mm-hmm. with intention. And I and I and again I and and it's funny because one of the things I prayed was, God, can you just give me signs? Like, can you just give me signs? My dad is with me, and I and I don't know what made me do it, but now that I'm listening to you, I'm wondering if I don't know why, but I'm wondering if there was just something in that moment, just the intention of making my bed, doing it with a level of perfection and precision that my dad is known for, mm-hmm. um, that you know maybe 
led me to do that. I don't know. I love that. And that becoming a ritual of like your little quiet way of honoring him every day. Like, I think that's so cool. And also we're so smart. We're so much smarter than we know. Small manageable tasks up against the ocean of grief. Like, yeah, like I, like people are like, why do you love unloading and reloading dishwashers so much? It's not, it's not horrible. And I'm like, because I know I can do it. And I know where everything goes and I know where everything comes out. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like up against everything else. Yeah. 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 tasks can be such like a, yeah. a great friend when you're up against these these odds and yeah. grappling with so much yeah. you know and I love that you say that see this is why these are never rapid thrivers because one of the things I've always said this is way back when is the best way to get like when you're in a space of uncertainty focus on that which you're certain of even something mm-hmm. as simply as take yourself through this mental game what's my name what's my age what year am i born mm-hmm. what month am i like suddenly you're now answering things that you know about and suddenly you'll realize wow there's a lot that i'm more certain about than i am uncertain of mm-hmm. and and that should help you just realize that over time you will get there you will start to understand and continue to move forward and realize that these things will start to unfold for you. And, and eventually you are operating in a place of certainty in a space where you thought one time you were uncertain of, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. And that's a, that's a beautiful grounding exercise, you know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> <Where's> you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What is the book that has helped you with your thrive? Hmm, you have a lot drive. of books behind you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and literally, I, I, I've been nomading for a year and a half, and I've paid so many overage fees because I'm trying to carry these books with me everywhere because I, it's weird. I, I read like three or four at a time, like usually one fiction and then three where I'm learning, but I, I do it in a way where I'm nourishing it in small manageable bites. I don't read the whole thing because I find things really help me when they do. Um, in In the last six months, I will say, the two books that have really helped me thrive. Um, one actually just came out and it's a friend of mine who wrote it. It's called Hopeless by Catherine Hammond. And um, I'm a hope monster in my heart. I talk about it in my book uh, and I owe a lot to hope, but it's the first person where I've really heard them talk about hope as a wellspring. And it's, it's not, you actually can't be hopeless. You can't run out of hope. And the whole message of the book is kind of like, if I was like asking for a friend to kind of back me up um, based on what I was saying out of feeling, but like, I'm like, can you academically come like back me up? And I just feel like she really has. Um, and that just became available. Uh, and then um, the other book that I read uh, that's just come out is called um, The Grieving Brain. Um, I was going to recommend it to you, actually, because I it was funny when I wrote my book, I was like, oh, maybe I should have taken longer and just backed up every weekly offering with science. Like, you know, because there's that part of my brain that wants, you know, that other side to be like, back it up and not just be a peer who's offering experience. And I really feel there's so much science that sort of naturally backs up where I'm coming from, from being within the arena. And it's like this beautiful harmony. Uh, Mary Frances O'Connor is the writer of it. And uh, it's just, it's just amazing. And, and actually there's the first chapter of it right now for you, especially being so fresh or for anyone trying to understand someone in grief or, um, or who's right in the midst of grief. She talks about this idea of like how we have these virtual brain maps of where everybody is. If I ask you right now, where is your husband or where is your child? You'll be like, oh, at school or playing or there's variables, but you map in connection to them where they are and you do that subconsciously all the time. So then when we lose somebody or something, but mostly somebody, your brain has to literally go, okay, where is my dad? Where is my dad? Where is my dad? Because you're aware that it's not in the usual place where you've brain mapped him in love, right? So there's there's 
a gentleness and, and a grace to that of allowing, you know, your brain map to slowly reprocess and, and hearing that from a scientific level, like she uses like different experiments with animals and proves it all on this, you know, these molecular levels. And I'm just like, it does empower me in a way to kind of bridge the two of my own learning and my own mindset training. But then like, here's the real science of what you're going through. Here's like when you're chemically bonded to somebody and the reason that you had the relationship with them, like how detrimental that is when that's broken, you know? So so it, it really has sort of, it's the book that if I had gone into a science or researcher role, I think I would have wanted to write based on my experiences. And again, like Catherine's book and Brene's book, Atlas of the Heart, it's just like right there behind me. I don't need to write that book. Let's let's put them all in a package, you know, and those four books, if you hand it to somebody in grief right now, my book, Hopeless, um, The Grieving Brain and Atlas of the Heart, I feel like if they slowly digested those over, yeah. you know, the next year, um, they'd really be getting to know themselves and, and, and in a way that they'd start to be able to communicate what's happening to them on multiple levels and connect with other people based on what's happening. Well, thank right. you for the map map of reading. I'm definitely, I, I didn't get a chance. I, want, I would love to have read your book before we had this. Um, but in the light of everything that happened, I haven't even had a chance to to pick up a book in the last couple of weeks. So I am going to read, I will be reading your book and I might have to bring you back on after that to have another discussion. Yeah, and it's it's over a year. So it's, it's all experiments in there, right? So, and I actually, I thought about that today. I'm like, what if people get the book and they never open it? Because we know we get inundated sometimes when we're in those initial stages. And I did write it as the answer to when people would call me and say, what do I do for somebody? And this is literally something I feel comfortable people getting on day one. And it, it does start on day one and it, it goes for a year. But the idea of it physically even being in your space, if it can just be the reminder that there is a grief club, that there's nothing to fix, there's just lots to honor. You know, it, it, every I time you that. see it, rather than a guilt that I'm, oh, I'm not doing that or I'm not checking in, it's not meant to be a linear year. It's it's the first year you decide to honor. And, you know, you know, and you will come to know, and everyone who's listening that's experienced grief knows that linear time dies with death in a way. You know, it doesn't, it's not meaningful a week. It's, it's in these phases that we experience things and these swirls and, you know, it's, it's, it's the different dimension kind of stuff, you know, so it's on your own time. And, and just, you know, if I can even just be the reminder in people's houses or the thing that comes instead of the 12th lasagna or the flowers that will also die, you know, then, then at least I'm there for when yeah, you're ready. I you know, that. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. What is a, what is an app that helps you with your thrive? Um, you know what, uh, I have to give credit to calm. Uh, I go to sleep every night. You know, that's just the hardest part for me. I, before all the post-traumatic, I never slept with like, now I sleep with earplugs and an eye mask and then have something on beyond the like muffled sound. And I got to give it to my boy McConaughey. I've been going to sleep to that Matthew McConaughey sleep story <laughs> for two years. And people are, yeah, people are like, have you ever read his book or you should get his audio book? And I'm like, no, that wouldn't work because the second I hear Matthew McConaughey, I know it's I'm I'm safe and it's time to sleep. Um, but it is something that I use. Yeah. Um, every single night. And, you know, as someone who, you know, iterated a startup and was in Silicon Valley, doing, you know, it's like that I have to say, like, I am a loyal, loyal user to calm. I got to um, check that out. I got yeah. to check that out. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. I love him. So yeah, I it's called the wonder, the sleep story. The and the funny sleep. thing is, is I still don't know after two years or however long it's been, I think it's two years that how the story ends. 
because it's like I just I drift. With, you no, you know, drift off. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And what is one misconception that people have of you as they see you in your thrive and everything that you've gone through and where you are in life today? Maybe. Um, that my existence means that I'm strong and somehow repellent of everything that still makes me human. Um, you know, like I said, the findings of these 13 years is that it's a daily relationship. So I get up every day and I have to be the boy again who doesn't have the brother or my father or make sense of things every morning. And there's days where truly I have all the tools that I've offered and I find resilience and, you know, I can thrive and I can understand and be empathetic to the way others show up to me. Um, but I, I, regardless of that, every day is still sort of a new day and um anyone who's willing to honor that with me you know and and not even compare me to my best last day you know but know that we're here today and this is what we're doing um that um that's something that that definitely you know getting told you know you're so strong you're so strong and also i'll just say and like i i'm not a fan of anything that kind of like it's minimizes you know a pretty people problem but i will say that one of the most common experiences that i went through and i knew everybody was just trying to be kind throughout my 20s when things were really difficult was they would say back to me oh but you look so good so it must not be that bad mm-hmm. oh but you look so good and they were just trying to lift me up you yeah. know and yeah. and i know they were trying to compliment me mm-hmm. but it was this weird thing where I, you know, it's like, so I don't look like my grief, like, so, yeah, and also, yeah, they're trying to compliment you, you know, they're trying, you yeah. know, and, and I get it, but it's just like, it's kind of like, oh, okay, so you don't look, oh, you don't look like you you're, know. you must be, you look okay, you actually look yeah, okay, but you look so good, and, yeah. you know, and you're just like, okay, and it's just so disarming, because it's, it's, it's a very polite way to not go with you into what you're yeah. feeling yeah. But for yeah. them to sign a say, yeah. but this is good. Look at this shiny yeah, object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you just, you really can't, you can't judge ever. You have no idea. You don't, uh-huh. you know, you would never know my story if you just saw me on the street or, or even when I'm showing up to things, speaking things, when I seem, you know, eloquent, eloquent, oh my God, I, that is the most hilarious word to mess up. <laughs> It's like when you're calling yourself eloquent to not be able to say eloquent. Those are the moments that I live for, the find the funny moments. But yeah, you know, it's like, yes, I joke, I laugh, I I show up when everything tells me not to. I do try to create impact in the world. But you know, I'm I'm still that inner child who's you know constantly, you know, wanting to be loved and just like feel connecting, you know. So so there's yeah, there's definitely a true gentleness. And and like, I feel like I know I'm rambling, but like the only other miscon- misconception that I feel like comes with is that I want to talk about death all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I actually wrote this book so I could be like, hey, here you, here go. you go. This <laughs> is everything I know. I'm going to go watch a comedy show, you know, like, so there is that. That's the other misconception is like, oh, yeah, he, he'll want me to tell him. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 that is so refreshing because even this week I realized like, am I supposed to look like I'm on death's door? Like, like yeah. I've actually heard that. Wow. You look really great. It's good to see you back at the gym. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, and I get it. I, and sometimes it's just the awkwardness of people not knowing what to say. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that you, wow, that's, I'm glad that you, you, you raised yeah. that. Where I got my humor back was it was after, you know, after the accident, I lost so much weight. I was like, you know, relearning to walk and everything. And I was like, okay, now y'all are just making shit up, you know? And that's where, <laughs> you know, now I was like, okay, so you've just been saying that to me. Nice. But my mom and I would joke, I'd be like, mom, they just keep saying how good I look. I mean, I'm one trauma away from Brad Pitt. Like, what, like, what the hell? Like, like that's the measure, but what? You look so good. Um, I love that. Thank you. So where do we find you? Where do we find more of you online? Um, I am on socials, Addison Brazil, uh, Brazil spelled like the country, but with an S as my dad always said. Um, and then um, mygriefclub.com is where you can find more about the book. The book's available worldwide on Amazon. And um, I will provide notes too, because I also have a text service out of the book where if you want gentle reminders from a friend who gets it, in your grief process, um, that's available and that's free as well. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll give you guys the notes beyond um, the usuals. I like that, a friend who gets it, that's awesome. And so as a final question, um, my, the podcast is called Empowered in My Skin. And I wanna know what that means to you. Hmm. You know, actually I did think about this. Um, <laughs> Heard it in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think for me, what that's been a long journey of, which is actually, I'm so glad you are asking this because despite the jokes I just made and sort of referring that there might possibly be, you know, a few steps away from Brad Pitt, which I know there's a long, long, long way to go from there. But um, despite being reminded of how I appear in the world, I've, I've never felt that. And I think part of that was in the non-honoring, you know, it was in all the trying to, to fix everything. And I do feel like I'm on the cusp finally of, you know, being empowered in my skin, as you say that it's something where it allows for my grief and my, everything that keeps me alive and everything in my body, just below the surface to be held, but in a way that's not tight, but it's flowing. And it's that like, that's, that's where I've been striving for without ever knowing. And, and to just, if you think about it again, like the way the body works, you know, it's not like the heart pumps blood and you're good for life. You know, every day that circulatory system has to continue to pump blood and the nutrients have to come in. And, and so that, that is empowered to me when I, when I feel that sense of flow within myself to just fully be myself, who I am in this moment you know, um, and, and more so within my, with my own inner critic there, you know, and, and be okay with that. Um, so yeah, yeah. That's, I think uh, that also brings me back to how you actually started with your, that you're exactly where you need to be mm-hmm. in this moment. Mm-hmm. I think that's full empowerment. You're not trying mm-hmm. to wish anything else into the circumstance, whatever it is that's in you right now is absolutely enough. That's beautiful. Oh, well, thank you very much for this beautiful discussion. I am positive it's definitely empowered people. It certainly has helped me. Um, I moved through a number of ranges. And I think that's the beautiful thing about humans. We, there's a range of emotion mm-hmm. that I think we, um, we went through in this particular episode. So thank you so much for the way that you show up. Thank you for how you showed up for me today. And thank you for how you showed up to every listener. Um, you're doing great things in this world. And we are truly benefactors of, of you being you. And uh, Mm. I really appreciate that. You truly matter. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that's listening. I trust that you are empowered in your skin. But for now, this is where I have to say we're out. 
Bye-bye. So there you have it. I hope you are thriving and feeling empowered and thoroughly enjoyed this episode. And remember, whatever platform you're listening to this on, please subscribe, like, review, and share this podcast with someone else that you think can benefit from the tips that were delivered. As Tom Bilyeu says, when we help others think in a way that is empowering, that is the lead domino to create real change in this world. It's been awesome sharing energy with you. It's your girl, and I'm out. <laughs>